So we're going to be doing a last lesson on contrasts of confessions this morning. Um, I want to reread a passage that you don't need to turn to, just want to remind of before we look at Luke. And after reading this, um, I'll just make a couple of introductory comments. Uh, so just in terms of like why this is such a, an important subject to understand and really be anchored in, 1 John 1 verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. In 1 John here, John emphasizes that confessing sin, recognizing our sin, that's not just something that we acknowledge at the onset of our salvation, but rather there's a discipline to growing in that and keeping in connection with that, even as we grow in our faith in a present sense. Just a couple of other um, introductory things. So this is the third lesson on this subject, and I know it might seem like you know we're beating the subject to death by now, but from the beginning, I plan on this. This is, was from the beginning going to be three lessons looking at the subject of confession from three different angles. Um, but I don't think I've mentioned why I started teaching on this subject particularly. Um, a couple months ago, there was a brother that we had to publicly acknowledge had forsaken the Lord. And we gave a lesson on 1 Corinthians 5 and dealt with that as Paul instructs there. Um, and as that brother and I were interacting, I was thinking a lot about this subject and the importance of this subject. And I was recognizing in myself that this is something that I really struggle with. Um, As I thought about it more, it wasn't just something that I could see this brother needed to do, but that I needed to understand much better and humble myself to practice more diligently. But also in 1 Corinthians 5, it says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And so I worry, I worry about the very subtle impact that when somebody is drifting from the Lord, they're not being honest. I get very concerned about the subtle influence that can cause where maybe in ways we don't quite see or really appreciate, we may take confession for granted and not really understand what that should look like and why that's so critical, right? So the point of these lessons, these three lessons, it's not that I'm trying to pressure any person to like, you know, make a public confession or looking at someone in particular like, hey, these lessons are for you, you know, take a hint. That's not it, right? Um, And again, this was from the beginning meant to be three lessons. So we looked initially at contrasting Saul and David, and the point of that lesson was really just fundamentally, what does genuine godly confession look like? And why is that so important to God? So we looked at Saul making a very shallow, unchanging confession, and David in Psalm 51 made a very critical, very heart-changing confession to God. The second lesson, we looked more at the importance of confession with making amends with God. And we looked at Judah in Jeremiah chapter 14, where they seem to, in some ways, 
make what looks like a genuine confession, but they're really not seeking to truly make amends with God. And so they were stuck in this cycle of habitual sin, and they were at a point where they really needed to break out of this cycle that they were in. And then we looked at Jeremiah and Lamentations 3 and the attitude and perspective Jeremiah had in his confession that really is the key attitude, the key faith to really breaking out of cycles of habitual sin that we get trapped in. This last lesson is going to be a little bit different, a little more fundamental. What we're going to be looking at here is the contrast between the Pharisees in Luke 11, who actually didn't confess at all. So there's no, there's no shallow confession. There's no maybe a little genuine confession. There's none of that. There's, there's no confession. So we're going to look at the damage of hypocrisy in this lesson. And then we're going to make a contrast with Zacchaeus, and we're going to see in contrast to the Pharisees and scribes how Zacchaeus interacted with Jesus and how exposed he allowed himself to be. And in the middle of that, so between those two is Luke 12, which was in the scripture reading. In Luke 12, we see Jesus really giving us what we need. He's equipping us to really pursue confession and pursue exposure, and all of that is going to lead us into Zacchaeus. So let's go back to Luke chapter 11 now. And I want to summarize a lot of this. So Luke 11 is a very tense interaction. Um, Glenn in the scripture reading read the very end of it. But in Luke's gospel, I don't think there's a single Pharisee or scribe you get to see in Luke's gospel that's like Nicodemus, right? So John's gospel, chapter 3, we see Nicodemus really building his faith. He interacts with Jesus. And by the end of John, we see that Nicodemus becomes a believer, a disciple, in Luke, when Luke talks about Pharisees and scribes, it's always bad. It's never good. Especially when Jesus eats with them in their house. This isn't the last time that Jesus will dine with a Pharisee, but I mean, it just goes very um, poorly may not be the right word because Jesus does utilize it for good purpose. But I don't think it ever turns out the way that they expect it to. So if you look at verse 37, Jesus is in the middle of teaching and it says, Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him and he went in and reclined at the table. So Jesus goes into the Pharisee's house, is having a meal. But in verse 38, when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. And this is where it starts to get tense. But the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others." Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Verse 45, by the way, in 46, this might sound bad, but I think it's kind of like the funniest uh, interaction in Luke's gospel. One of the lawyers then speaks up and said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. So imagine like, he's like, okay, calm down a little. You know, when you're saying this, I don't know if you realize, but you're insulting us with them. And then look at verse 46. But he said to him, woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear. So this is a very tense interaction here. And I don't think it goes at all like what they were expecting. 
But the idea I really want to pull out from this is the way that Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the scribes, it really ends up exposing and revealing the consequences of not confessing sin, just being unwilling, blind or unwilling. And so I want to pull out some principles here generally from this text. Verse 40 through 43, which, which we read, a lack of confession. You know, so the Pharisees, they were putting on this false image, right? And Jesus acknowledges that in verse 39 and in verse 44. You know, they, they really clean the outside. They make themselves appear righteous to men. But in reality, what Jesus sees is they're actually full of robbery and wickedness internally. And really, their lack of confession, it absolutely destroyed their ability to share God's perspective, to share his values, and to share in his character. You know what's interesting? It says, now when he had spoken... And I think there is a deliberate connection Luke is making with what Jesus had just finished saying. Back in verse 33 through 36, Jesus teaches Luke's version of the eye is the lamp of the body. What's interesting is he says in verse 34, the eye is the lamp of your body, therefore when your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. Notice in verse 39 again, he says, you are full of robbery and wickedness. But I want you to look at verse 38. When the Pharisee saw that Jesus had not ceremonially washed before the meal. So Jesus had just said, your eye is the lamp of your body. If your eye is bad, your body's full of darkness. He goes to eat with the Pharisee, and what a coincidence. The Pharisee sees Jesus doing something and interprets this as Jesus having done something wrong. And then what does Jesus see? How does he see the Pharisees? What is he looking at, right? And so this illustrates this teaching. And again, the idea is the perspective that the Pharisees had was so far from God's. They were in opposite directions, right? But then if you look at verse 42, they were very careful with these very measurable aspects of the law, things that were very quantifiable and mathematical. Those things they were extremely careful with, but yet they had disregarded and neglected justice and the love of God. And they were blind to it, right? And so their hypocrisy had made it impossible for them to share in God's values and his character. The idea is that's the same that's true for us if we fail to practice proper confession. Verse 46, as Jesus goes on to rebuke the lawyers who were scribes, basically the idea is, these are experts of the law of Moses. If you had some kind of question or dispute, these would be the guys to go to to help you work it out and figure out a solution. So he says, you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The idea is their lack of confession, it destroyed their capacity and it destroys ours as well to meaningfully and effectively bear the burdens of our brethren. And we think about it, doesn't that make sense? That if I'm not willing to be honest myself with struggles that I face, if I don't really see the mercy of God towards me first and understand how patient he is, how he brings himself so low to care for me and give me my attention, what motive or energy am I going to be willing to give to someone else where they need a reflection of God's patience toward them? And so really first, I have to see and acknowledge that with myself in order to give it to others, and they were unwilling to do that. 
By the way, this is really tempting as a teacher. It's really easy um, to read in preparation for a lesson and just kind of like focus on, ooh, that's going to be a convicting point. And you just kind of look for really hard lessons and then just kind of walked out from a sermon like, nice, that was, that was really convicting, that really hit hard. And then just not even bother to really understand that this is something that requires difficult patience to apply. There needs to be a lot of relational work to put this all together. Brethren need support in following the will of God. Again, they need mercy and graciousness. And hypocrisy just, it destroys that. Verse 49 through 51 says, for this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send them, I will send to them prophets and apostles. Some of them they will kill and some they will persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets said, shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who is killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Skip down to verse 53 and 54. This would have been a great opportunity to just kind of let it sink in. You know, even if you're not going to respond in humility in the moment, at least like listen and allow yourself to be humiliated, right? I mean, Jesus was speaking very directly. He's a miracle worker. He has a huge crowd. I mean, it's obvious Jesus is someone to listen to. How do they respond? Verse 53 and 54. Just as I think verse... Uh, 45 is one of the funniest examples of a response to Jesus. I think verse 53 and 54 is actually one of the saddest responses to Jesus. He's been trying to help them and going for broke, right? I don't know if you've experienced this, but when you have a conversation with someone where when you speak to them, you've already made up your mind I'm willing to lose everything for this one conversation. I will lose this relationship and I'm willing to suffer for this one conversation just to go for broke, to tell them what they need to hear and just put the ball in their court. And how do they respond to that? They begin challenging Jesus. They respond with hostility. They're plotting against him that they might catch him in something he might say. Here's the idea. A lack of confession, it destroys our heart's ability to be needfully penetrated and changed by God's word. That's not to say that everything we hear from God's word, every sermon, every time we open our Bibles, that it's going to be some dramatic change and we're going to have some dramatic emotional response. But there's something critical about hearing God's word taught or investing in it and being willing to acknowledge, I'm guilty. This is talking about me. It's me, right? Compared to things just washing over and you go on and nothing changes. Just being willing to say, it's me. I'm, I'm the sinner is what really is the faith that connects us with God. And finally, verse 52, the influence. We're going to contrast the influence of the scribes and Pharisees with Zacchaeus here. But if you look at verse 52, woe to you lawyers. The most educated people who, from what I understand, Pharisees, for instance, had to have the whole law of Moses, the Pentateuch. Um, they had to have the first five books of the Old Testament memorized, I think, by like eight or 12. So they're very educated in the word of God. And yet he says, you've taken away the key of knowledge. You yourself did not enter and you hindered those who were entering. So it's not that they didn't know God's word. It's how they handled it and responded to it. 
You know, they were not influencing people to do what John the Baptist was preaching, that they needed to confess their sins, humble themselves, and demonstrate humility. A lack of confession is one of the greatest hindrances to the culture of God's kingdom. How can a new Christian who's broken, whose life is in absolute disrepair, who has a multitude of sinful habits that are going to be pulling on them and weighing on them, how can someone like that come into a culture where nobody's really being willing to, nobody is willing to be honest about their struggles as well? Can they succeed? Can they survive? Can any relationship help someone like that? No. And so Jesus says, the people entering the kingdom, not only are you not helping them, you are hindering them. You've taken away the key of knowledge. Let's look at verses 1 through 9, and let's look at Jesus' solution. So as we read in the scripture reading, Jesus' response isn't, can you believe those guys? What a joke. No, he turns to his disciples and he says, listen. So let's read that. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. I say to you, My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. By the way, that verse 8 and 9, I think it's helpful to see that within the flow of teaching and context, that he's not just talking about here, acknowledging, yeah, Jesus is Lord, or yeah, Jesus is the Christ, but rather the confession, the lack of hypocrisy. Let's, so let's go back. The idea is Jesus equips us to, to see hypocrisy as a personal problem. I think oftentimes... People who are in tune with their own hypocrisy don't make broad, sweeping generalizations about others, right? What I mean by this is I'm going to be so much less prone to say, ah, there's so many hypocrites in the church. Or man, God's people, man, there's so many people who are so hypocritical. I'm going to be less prone to make those generalizations when I first and foremost see I struggle with hypocrisy. It's difficult to be progressively honest and search my heart and be truthful with others about the reality of my struggle to continue to grow or issues, challenges, sin that I'm facing in my life right now. And so Jesus turns things to his disciples and doesn't say, yeah, don't be like them. He said, beware, meaning you need to pay attention to this. And don't let this excitement of these thousands of people are coming, they're stepping on each other. You imagine the disciples could be smiling and thinking, wow, this could not be going better. Jesus says, beware. Think. Remember. Don't let this lesson be lost in this excitement. And so we have to pursue exposure. And I think Jesus equips us in a few ways here. So obviously the initial lesson is we need to see this personally and not look so much generally at others. It's always something where it's a me-first lesson. 
But verse 2 and 3 is very interesting. And I was thinking about how to word this, and I hope this makes sense. God's light equips us to embrace exposure. And I think there's an idea that Jesus may also be pointing to judgment. I don't know about you, but when I picture what the Bible says about the final judgment where we stand before the throne of God, I don't imagine that God has like a room and then there's a line outside and then he says like next and then you go into this private room, he closes the door, then you go out and you've kind of like been told where you're going. Every picture that I see in the Bible is judgment is something where you're standing there and you're surrounded by people and God is going to bring to light every secret thing. And so if there's sin that's not resolved, if there are secrets in the heart that have been hiding, that's going to come to light. And the things that have been covered, they're going to be uncovered. The things that were hidden are going to be made known. Things said in the dark are going to be brought to light. The idea is Jesus is saying, you need to embrace that reality right now. And think about the most relatable people, the people that God puts as our greatest examples in the Bible. David. Why is David so approachable? God brought these secret things that David was doing and puts them right in front of us publicly. And David is very approachable and gives us so much confidence in the grace of God. Peter. I hear so many people say, you know, Paul, you know, Paul never did anything wrong. I can't really relate to Paul, but Peter, what a mess. Man, I can relate to Peter because, you know, he's constantly making mistakes, putting his foot in his mouth. But why? Because we see Peter fail catastrophically, but through that we learn about the grace of God. Again, the idea is God is seeking to bring to light those things that we want to cover and hide. And that gives us confidence to seek exposure willfully. Verse 4 and 5, when he says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but after that have no more they can do, but rather fear God. What were the Pharisees, why were the Pharisees not willing to confess what Jesus was teaching? We find out over and over again, the Pharisees and scribes were afraid of people afraid of losing their position, afraid of losing their influence. They were afraid of the opinions of other people. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, they feared people more than they feared God. I want to pause on this because I think that this is really relevant. Um, Just a couple of principles to think of. Satan creates a prison of fear that holds us and keeps us trapped in our guilt. Um, you know, I've mentioned many times that when I was younger, I drifted from the Lord and fell away. Um, And if I think really honestly about the root of that was simply oftentimes I was just afraid of what, what people would say or think if I was honest with them about struggles I was having, temptations I was facing, sin that I was involved in that I was ashamed of. And I let the fear of reaction from others keep me from healing. And because of that, my heart became progressively callous and eventually became completely apostate apart from God. And then when I repented, you know, there was still a struggle that I had with things like pornography addiction. And I remember being so ashamed and thinking, I can't tell anybody about this because I'm just so afraid of what people are going to think of me. But again, Satan uses that fear to trap us and lock us in to cycles of sin like we looked at with Jeremiah. And so ultimately, we have to be more afraid of God's rejection than the rejection of people, right? We need to be more afraid of what God is going to do if we don't repent, if we're not open, than what people will do. 
And by the way, what I found by experience, I know this may not always be true, right? But what I have found is that God's people are 100% of the time so much more patient and compassionate than I anticipate. You know, so when I'm thinking about being honest about something difficult, I'm like, oh, they're going to they're gonna cast me away. You know, they're going to they're gonna be so disgusted with me. And then when I actually open up, I find that they're so understanding, so compassionate, so merciful. So again, these, this prison of fear that we build for ourselves is really just a lie Satan uses to keep us trapped. And then finally in 6 and 7, there's this irony, right? So Jesus says, on the one hand, fear God, be afraid. And then all of a sudden in verse 7, he says, oh wait, don't, don't fear. And I want to suggest to you, there's no contradiction there, but it's two things working together. The reality is, making amends for sin, facing exposure, there are difficulties with that, right? There's embarrassment, there's humiliation. Maybe there is some loss of reputation you have to suffer. Maybe there is a loss of relationship even, right? Or consequences that are going to last a long time. But God's grace gives us absolute 100% assurance. God is going to bless us and he will protect us every single step and he will walk with us when we're simply honest and we truly make amends for things. And so we don't need to fear consequences from others. We don't need to fear consequences in this life because God is going to use those things and whatever trial it is for his glory and for our greater good in the end. So God's light equips us to seek exposure. The fear of God encourages us and the grace of God equips us to willfully pursue exposure and honesty. So let's look at how this all comes together positively with Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, if you'll turn your Bibles there. So all of these lessons that Jesus is talking about are actually all illustrated in the example of Zacchaeus here. And I really want to highlight just how amazing this account is. Um, Zacchaeus is only recorded in Luke's gospel. And Luke's gospel is interesting. This might sound um, strange, But Luke's gospel is actually the only gospel out of the four. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Luke's gospel is the only gospel that records people seeking forgiveness from Jesus apart from any miracle. So for instance, Matthew, Mark, John, they'll record people being forgiven, but it's always every time in connection with a miracle. Think about as an example, Mark chapter 2, guy is lowered in a pallet, he's crippled, and Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. But he's also there because, you know, he's seeking to be healed and Jesus does heal him. Luke is the only gospel that records people coming to Jesus only because they're seeking forgiveness. No miracle, no healing of the body. One is in Luke 7, and it's the woman who cries at his feet, wiping the tears with her hair. The second is Zacchaeus here in Luke 19, and the third is the thief on the cross. He didn't, you know, say, Jesus, get me down from here. I'm sorry, forgive me, get me down. Um, All three of these examples, you only see the conversation for forgiveness in Luke's gospel. Another thing that makes this really significant is in chapter 19, Jesus goes into Jerusalem. So I think it's fair to say that the weight of the world is literally crashing down on Jesus' shoulders. He's been anticipating this for a long time, and you imagine the anxiety that's been built up about this. And by the way, if you were to look on a map, as far as what I've heard and what I understand, Jericho is not exactly the quickest way 
to get to Jerusalem from Galilee where he started his journey. And it's like Jesus goes all the way to Jericho in the east and then is willing to travel all the way to Jerusalem for Zacchaeus. And he doesn't just interact with Zacchaeus. He stays in his house. Jesus is willing to stop everything for a moment just to talk with Zacchaeus. Let's read this, and then let's think about the crowd's response. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So you just think about this scene. It's very visual, right? Jesus is coming by, and you imagine there's a loud crowd. Just you imagine huge multitude of people that are following him and crowding all around him. Zacchaeus, this short man, is wanting to see Jesus, but has to climb up this tree. And you imagine Jesus stops in Jericho, looks up and says, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. I must stay at your house today. And you imagine you hear the leaves in the tree rustling. You hear Zacchaeus maybe laughing joyfully as he begins to try to climb down. And all of a sudden the noise starts to hush. Everything becomes quiet. And you begin to hear arising the sound of grumbling. And you imagine everybody can hear it. People are saying he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. This is interesting because that's been said again and again in Jesus' ministry already. Um, There's already been multiple times in Luke's gospel where Jesus has been eating and he has been teaching tax collectors and sinners. And again and again, Jesus has been making the point that this is who he's come to save. And yet, here after over three years, it's the same problem, different day. You know, it's interesting that Jesus, when he heard this, didn't say, You hypocrites! How dare you? And it's not Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus doesn't say, you know, your disciples are just so obnoxious. How could they say this? Neither of them respond that way. Zacchaeus humbles himself further because of the crowd's judgment. I just, I can't say enough. Hypocrisy is an ongoing problem. The reality is, it really is, and I'm I'm not just saying this to make a point in a lesson. This, This is... You know, I struggle with hypocrisy and and having the kind of honesty I need to have. And I think Jesus understands that. And so to break down these difficult lessons, there need to be living illustrations to demonstrate things. And with Zacchaeus, I think this really shows humility in confession. The reality is, a part of what builds up our fear, are you as forgiving as God is? Are you as kind as God is to sinners? Are you as compassionate? Well, there's our fear right there, right? I know God's going to forgive me. I just pray and I don't even see him and 
You know, it's like a lottery or like a, you know, a machine where I pull the lever, God forgive me, done, it's over with, right? Not the case with people, is it? But you know, within that is something very good. Because if I confess my sin to a person, and let's say they respond badly, let's say they get angry, do I deserve to be treated correctly? Do I have the right to be honored for what I've done? Should I expect that? You know, so even if people struggle and struggle greatly to receive me well, even in that can be a very humbling lesson. I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve kindness. I don't deserve, I don't have a right to a quick response and people aren't machines. And you know what that does is it magnifies the truth of God's forgiveness, doesn't it? And Zacchaeus in his humility understood those things. And so Zacchaeus didn't withdraw from the disciples. He humbled himself even further as a result. And Zacchaeus not only confessed his sin, you know, I don't think in um, verse 8 where he says, if I have defrauded anyone, I don't think he's saying like, well, I don't want to outright say it, so, you know, maybe if I've defrauded anyone. Um, I think that's an invitation. You know, Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. So he's interacted with a lot of people, probably more than he can remember, right? He's probably defrauded people more than he can remember. And I think it's interesting, the rich young ruler, you remember him? That's in chapter 18. Jesus said, sell what you have, give it to the poor, follow me. He wasn't willing. Zacchaeus is giving away everything. I know he says, look, I give half my possessions to the poor. Well, what's that other half for? Zacchaeus is inviting people. He's saying publicly, if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to give back four times as much. So now think about this. You are someone Zacchaeus has defrauded. What are you going to do now? Well, I'm going to go talk to Zacchaeus. He's like, hey man, yeah, you did do this thing and you said this thing. And I think Jesus' response shows that Zacchaeus is not just saying words. He's made a very real commitment, right? Four times as much. You know, God's culture was to be like this from the very beginning. Um, Numbers 5, it is... We'll read this here. Numbers 5, 6 through 7. This is back in the Old Testament. Speak to the sons of Israel when a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty. Then he shall confess his sins, which he has committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong and add to it one-fifth of it and give it to him whom he has wronged. By the way, so restitution... Well, I want to deal with these two words. Reconciliation is restoring a relationship that has been broken. Restitution is restoring something that's been damaged, it's been lost, or it's been stolen. It's the idea of giving it back, right? So if something's been damaged, maybe I'll get you a new one. Or if I've lost something, I'll get you a new one or I'll pay for it. But even in the law, it wasn't just give it back in equal measure. It is you give more back to the person, one-fifth more, for whatever has been done wrong, right? Is Zacchaeus only doing one-fifth more? He's saying four times as much. Where did he get the motivation to do that? Think about Jesus' ministry. Jesus seeking sinners. Has God been willing to lose reputation for that? Was Jesus willing to lose reputation for Zacchaeus? Think about the resource that Jesus is as the Son of God. Is God willing to spend incredible resources 
to reconcile the relationship with us. And who's guilty there, by the way? Who should be the one that has to pay an amount, right? Zacchaeus' response shows that he understands Jesus is not just teaching the obedience of the law, but he is demonstrating the grace of God in unfathomable measure. And so this idea that grace equips us for exposure, we see that in Zacchaeus. How did God's grace lead Zacchaeus to respond? And by the way, one more thing on that. Jesus outright told the rich young ruler, sell everything you had, give it to the poor, didn't do it. Did Jesus tell Zacchaeus to do this? It's amazing what a good heart will do without being pressured, commanded, demanded. It's amazing what a good heart will do. With this, a warning, and this is really important because this happens way too often. An unwillingness or a resistance to reconcile relationships with brethren or to make restitution is a sure sign of an unchanged heart. Just as an example of this, in my past, I've talked with a brother who had been committing sin with, um, with a congregation where he had hurt a lot of people, a lot of people. And he left. He just abandoned ship. And I got to talk with this brother and encouraged him that he really needed to reconcile those wrongs and he really needed to own up to what he had done. And he laughed and he said, I don't owe anything to any so-called hurt brethren. Is that the heart that Jesus was looking for? Is that what really honors the cross and the kingdom? That's the kind of thing we just, we can't tolerate that. You know, with what Jesus has done, the idea that we would be unwilling, that we wouldn't even fundamentally attempt to make any restitution when we've hurt brethren, that should be unheard of. It's simply not what we see with Jesus' teaching or with Zacchaeus. And I want you to think about how important Zacchaeus' example was here, right? There's another example. Um, there's a brother that I'm good friends with who in his past really struggled with pornography addiction and you know, we would talk about that together. Um, and he told me one day that the congregation where he was, big congregation, I mean 200, 300 people, and there was a man who had a wife who went forward and he confessed before the entire congregation he had been struggling with pornography addiction. And when this brother and I were talking about that, he didn't say, how disgusting, how shameful that this brother would be struggling with that when he's married, especially. What do you think the subject was of our conversation? He said, when I saw that, I thought to myself, that should be me up there. I should be the one going up there before everybody. You know, and that was critical to making the next steps to overcoming a sin that for him was very powerfully enslaving. There's nowhere in scripture that says, you know, if you commit a sin, you have to go forward at an assembly. That's, that's something we do as an expedient for the nature of an, ex an assembly. We assume that, you know, as God's word is taught, that someone may be convicted and may need to bring things forward. But you know what power there is in an example? When someone is willing to bring things forward and make them known. You know, it's not just something that we do publicly. I think this congregation particularly is so encouraging because in my relationship with the brethren, I find a lot of honesty, a lot. 
and I find growing honesty, and I think that's very encouraging. But these are the kinds of things that we need to be striving for and initiating. These are the kinds of things that will build maturity within this congregation and protect faith within this church. So the lesson is yours. And I just want to leave you again thinking the importance and the power of Zacchaeus' example and what that did for this crowd of people who needed this lesson. Verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. If you're here this morning and you're convicted by the word of God and the gospel, there's water behind me, behind these curtains, and you can be baptized into Christ and be free from sin and have the hope of eternal life today. And if there's anything in your life that you feel would be appropriate to make known, the brethren are eager to help in whatever capacity we can. We stand and sing our invitation song.